Please say your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 9, the reading we had. We're resuming Mark. Some of you will not even remember when we were last in the book of Mark. All kinds of things have been in the way. I think uh, Gavin took over for a while, or about 30 or 40 weeks, and then he left. The pandemic took over. Then we had our preaching team going through Romans for a while, and uh, I'm resuming Mark this evening, where I left off many, many, many moons ago. And uh, the section that we're looking at really follows the turning point in each of the Gospels. Each of the Gospels tells a story of uh, Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah. Uh, Matthew gives us the full confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And uh, in each of the Gospels, that confession of who Jesus is, is the kind of turning point. From this point onwards, Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem. He's on the way to the cross. Everything else has been dealt with. And the movement now speeds up, and, and the cross is the destination towards which he's going. The disciples have made a good confession. I mean, Peter's confession of faith is absolutely orthodox, absolutely right. I don't know how much of it he understood himself or the others understood. They knew that that's the kind of thing, that was the conclusion that Jesus was drawing them towards. But as yet their minds are equivocating between what they see before them. They see a man. They see the man, Christ Jesus. He looks like any other man. Uh, just one, like one of us, a stranger on the bus trying to find his way home. That, that picture of Jesus as the man. And so they're, they're competing with that thought of him and with the pressures, the pressure of his teaching, the pressure of his ministry, his miracles, of healing, the nature miracles he performs, these are putting pressures on their, on their thinking that are pulling them in the direction of the divine. So they, they see the human, but the pressures of Jesus' teaching from the Old Testament, for example, and, and the way in which what he's doing seems to be fulfilling the Old Testament as well as these miracles that he's doing, are, which are God events. Nobody else could do these kinds of things. The walking in the water and all that, that kind of stuff. I've tried it, you sink. Don't try it at home, folks. Only Jesus is able to do that kind of thing. And so the pressures are on the thinking of the disciples towards divinity, but it's hard to accept divinity when you're confronted by the man, Christ Jesus. So, that's where we are in the story. And, and the confession of Jesus, of course, was immediately followed up by the transfiguration, where Jesus takes three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, up onto a high mountain. And there on that mountain, Jesus is transfigured. That is, his bodily presence and his face uh, shine with the glory of God. His face shines like a thousand suns in full strength blisteringly blinding them. And they see Moses and Elijah, the prophets, and the, of the law and the prophets represented there, appearing with Jesus on the mountain. That, and suddenly they're overshadowed by a cloud of the 
glory of the Holy Spirit and the Father's voice is heard. This is my Son, hear Him. This experience really is a, is a God experience. Jesus has described it in terms of what it's going to be like when you see Jesus coming back again at the second coming in the glory that He has. They saw Him as He would be in His resurrection body. They saw Him as He would be in His glorified, exalted, heavenly body as He is today. They saw that. They had a preview of that there on the mountain. And there are reminiscences as you, as you hear this. You, uh, you, you see that there are overshadowings of the Old Testament even here. You think of Moses. Well, Moses was there with them on the mountain. That would have made them think about Moses' own experience in the mountain when he had an encounter with God. And there's an echo of the story of Moses in the passage we've read this evening. As Jesus and his disciples who've been on the mountain, having left the rest of the band uh, there at the bottom to mix with the people who are there looking for Jesus as they always were, and now Jesus is on his way down through the mountain. The men who are with him are trying to deal with the language that Peter used. Peter himself is probably trying to deal with the language he had used. Then that had been followed by Jesus' bewildering conversation with them about the cross, not only a cross for Jesus, that he would have to be crucified, but a cross for Jesus' people, that Jesus' people would have to follow him and take up their cross and follow him. Counterbalanced by the experience of seeing him transfigured. And as they come down the mountain, Jesus' insistence that the Son of Man would have to suffer many things. All of this is in their mind. And now as they descend the mountain, they come across a great crowd. That was nothing unusual. They've come looking for Jesus. And the scribes are there. The scribes are always there in the background. They're like the the secret police are always there or thereabouts taking notes, watching what Jesus does taking notes about what Jesus says, trying to find evidence they can pin on him. Uh, They're there. The scribes are there. A great crowd is there. And the remainder of the disciples are there. And as soon as we see Jesus come and approach them, the first thing that we discover is the effect of Jesus' presence upon those who were gathered at the foot of the mountain. Let me read it to you. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder, and they ran to meet him. Before he'd done anything, said anything, before he'd signed anything or sung anything, the people were overwhelmed simply by his being. Now, I've suggested just a moment ago that there's a parallel with the the experience of Moses. You remember Moses, uh, back in Exodus 34 and verse 30, Moses uh, is taken up into the mountain. He goes up into Mount Sinai, you remember, and he takes three people with him as he goes up into the mountain of Sinai in order to meet with God there. He goes into the cloud. He, He sees the glory of God and so on. And then after that's happened, Moses comes down from the mountain, 
and he encounters all Israel, a gang of people, just as Jesus was doing here. A, a great group of the whole nation is there gathered. And he finds chaos reigning there, Moses does. And the two accounts, the account of Moses and the account of Jesus, at this point, both descend the mountain and both are confronted by people who should know better behaving badly. Behaving badly. And as Jesus approaches, they see only Jesus. That is, they see him. This is emphasized in the text. They saw him and immediately ran up to him. He's at the center of the drama. And they are amazed. The word for amazed there, astonished. It's usually something that happens after there's been a great miracle or surpassing teaching or a theophany, an appearance of God. People are caught up in this effect. And this is the effect that's described here. This was the effect on these people. It was as if they'd had an encounter with God. And... Uh, they're not seeing merely the, uh, they're not seeing the after effects of the transfiguration. This is simply his being there. They couldn't articulate it, I don't think. Schweitzer puts it like this. His authority emanates from him even before he speaks or acts. In other words, it is simply Jesus himself who is so amazing. Jesus himself. And it's the effect of Jesus' presence that we see. And then the second thing we see in the story is the answer to Jesus' question. The effect of Jesus' presence, the answer to Jesus' question. This is how he begins. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? Now, this question does not suggest that Jesus is ignorant about what's going on. Jesus is not asking them to tell him what's going on. He's asking them the question in order to make the scribes and the Pharisees and the disciples and the crowds to think about what is going on right at this point of time. And the answer doesn't come from the disciples, doesn't come from the scribes. The answer comes from a man in the crowd. The man in the crowd answered him and said, Teacher, in the other Gospels, Lord, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that is a demon that makes him mute, dumb. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked, you, I asked your disciples to cast him out. And they were not ready. That's the story the man tells. Now, there are obvious symptoms there. If you're a medical person, you'll recognize some symptoms that might be diagnosed as epilepsy. The Gospels, however, distinguish between physical symptoms symptoms that are primarily medical, and it will tell you straight out what those are. But the gospel sometimes describes the symptoms and attributes them not to a physical reality, but 
to demonic forces. Whether the person already has epilepsy and the demon accentuates it or uses it to further destroy the person who has the condition. This very often happens. And in this case, the story makes it very clear that this boy's condition was accentuated, made worse by the presence of the demon. The demon is using it to torture and torment this boy. Now, Mark, in his account of the life of Jesus, concentrates most of his healings and exorcisms at the beginning of the book. Once you get past the confession of Peter and the transfiguration, they kind of die out. They stop being recorded by by Mark. Other things take over. The teaching is much more the focus of the story. The miracles were to get the attention of the people. Now Jesus wants to talk to the people and not perform miracles as a kind of sideshow for them to come and observe. That's the background. And that's what's going on here. We, this, is the only, this is the only miracle and demonic exorcism in the second part of Mark's account. And that draws our attention to its importance, its significance, and particularly its significance vis-a-vis the event that has just taken place on the mountain. Now, now, throughout Mark, starting right at the very beginning in chapter 1, in verse 3, Mark is quoted from the prophet Isaiah. And uh, throughout Mark, there are these overtones of um, Isaiah's teaching, especially Isaiah's use of the idea of a new exodus that would be accomplished by the Messiah. Uh, so when... Uh, Isaiah talks about the suffering servant. The suffering servant is, in Isaiah's mind, the true servant. In the Bible, who is the servant of the Lord? In the Old Testament, the servant of the Lord is Israel, my servant Israel. But my servant Israel isn't serving very well, isn't isn't obeying very well, isn't holy. My servant Israel is in rebellion against me. That's what we were seeing from the book of Judges. My servant Israel is not really my servant, Israel. But this new one, this one who's coming, the the Messiah when he comes, and who will be the suffering servant, he is true Israel. He is God's true servant, Israel. And he will deliver blind Israel. That is, Israel that has blinded its eyes to the work of God, blinded its eyes to the law of God. He will deliver blind Israel by his work, by his suffering, by his death, and by his resurrection. And this one that's coming, Isaiah says, is not only the suffering servant, he's the Davidic Messiah who is the true Son of God. Unto us a boy is born. That's a physical birth. Unto us a son is given. That's his eternal origin. His bornness, physical his givenness divine. And this, this Redeemer, this Messiah, will be a warrior and a healer. He, he's come to deliver people from their bondage. 
He wants to lead the blind and the deaf and those who are imprisoned out into the place of deliverance and and liberty. And he's the one who will eventually arrive in Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem. Here in Mark, the accounts are of a second exodus, a greater exodus. This is made explicit in Luke's account of the transfiguration when Jesus is on the mountain being transfigured and Moses and Elijah come to speak to him. Luke tells us quite clearly, he uses the very word, they discussed the exodus that Jesus was going to accomplish in Jerusalem. Now, I said earlier that in the first exodus, Moses, when they got to Mount Sinai, goes up the mountain with Aaron and Nadab and Abihu, and the glory of the Lord descends and settles on Mount Sinai as a cloud, and Moses entered the cloud. These three that were with Jesus had been where Moses was. They'd seen the glory of God. They'd seen Jesus on the mount. They'd seen his face, his garments transformed. They'd seen him joined by these heavenly figures, these men who had died and and were now in glory, and they're glorified with Jesus. And so there's a deliberate linking of the first exodus and the second exodus. But there's a further link. In Exodus 32, Moses went down from the mountain. And as he went down from the mountain, having received the Ten Commandments, you remember, he encountered a faithless people. They were singing and dancing. They'd built the golden calf. They were worshiping the golden calf as a way of worshiping Yahweh, the God that they served. <clears throat> Through the calf, they sought to, go, to, to have something tangible by which they could see and think about the God, the invisible God that they were worshiping. And here we find Jesus now. Jesus descends the mountain, and he finds a faithless people. Here we find the contrast between Jesus' faithfulness and his people's faithlessness. Just as in the Old Testament we see God's faithfulness and Israel's failure of faith that led to their idolatry. One of the saddest things, look at verse 18. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. This takes us to the third point. The third point is the failure of Jesus' disciples. They had tried. They'd failed. Just as Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the prophet, failed to resurrect a dead child in 2 Kings 4. And you see what Jesus' response is. He answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? And see whom he's addressing here. His own disciples. His own disciples. Because of their failure to exercise the demon. 
Matthew, in his account, sees that this very clearly, that their, their failure is exacerbated by the fact that in chapter 10 of Matthew, Jesus had already given them authority to expel demons. The implication is that they failed, not from inability, but from a failure of faith, a failure to use the authority they already possessed as a gift from Jesus. They didn't take him at his word. Their horizons were limited to merely human possibilities. Now, pause for a moment. The title of this sermon is When the Church Gets in the Way. The people had wanted to come to Jesus. They, they wanted Jesus to, to, uh, to heal their child. Jesus' people were there. They identified Jesus' people with Jesus himself. They thought that in bringing the boy to the disciples, they were going to get the treatment that Jesus would give to the boy. We need to remind ourselves as a church that people come to the church on their way to Jesus. They meet us first. They come to us first. They think that somehow or other we're able to do what Jesus can do for them, and we can. We have the words of eternal life. We are there to minister Jesus to them, to be the hands and the feet and the hug that Jesus cannot give them because He's in glory. He uses us as instruments to be that and to do that for people. And very often when people come looking for answers, when they come looking for a way to understand things that are beyond the normal things of time and sense, and they come amongst the people of God, they find us just as much like them as the disciples were here. Very often... We think, even in the way we discuss business sometimes, and even in the way we think about the, the mission of the church and evangelism and, and gospel work, we, say, we think in, in a way that is limited by the possibilities of human action, human decision, human uh, ability, human provisions and, and money and whatever it is. We limit God to what we think is possible. That's what the disciples were doing. And when the church limits God to what we think at a human level is possible, what are we doing? We're getting in the way between the people who need to hear and Jesus, just as these disciples had in this story. And you see in these words that Jesus speaks in their harsh words, he's addressing them to the disciples and with the majority of worldly-minded people. He's lumping his disciples with the scribes and with the people as a whole. That's the challenge. If Jesus says this to the church, seriously, we have a problem. Unbelief in the church justifies and promotes unbelief in the world. Peter has expressed the faith of the church, our faith. 
You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. In other words, you are in the God side of the equation. Here are creatures, stars, planets, people, animals. Here are creatures on the one hand, and here is God. Jesus, you belong to the God side of the equation, the maker, creator. We are the creatures. And unbelief comes in, creeps in, when we forget that, when we forget that. Very often sin in our lives, when we sin, it's because we forget that God sees where we're, where we're at. He knows what's in our mind. He knows what we're saying. He knows what we're looking at. He, he sees everything. There's nothing hidden from him. One should believe in God. You know that. And when you act as if God doesn't see, guess what? You're acting as if you don't believe in God at all. Unbelief in the church justifies and promotes unbelief in the world. Now, of course, some people come to this story, and uh, some of the modern teachers, television preachers, would say that uh, lack of faith lies in a failure to expect success. In other words, if you believe you can, you will. Just expect it. Claim it. Claim the success. This passage gives a lie to that false teaching. These disciples had expected to be successful. They'd gone into action taking for granted they could do it. Professor Cranfield says it was in this taking for granted that their lack of faith shows. The church has brought its confession of Christ into disrepute. They were not shining like lights in the world, holding forth the word of life in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, Philippians 3. As God says to Israel through Moses, you were unmindful of the rock that begot you. You forgot the God who gave you birth. You are a perverse and foolish generation. That's what Jesus is getting at when he says, How long am I to bear with you? Those very words, by the way, presuppose Jesus' eternal preexistence. That he existed eternally with the Father and the Spirit, and that he's here on a mission in our human nature, on a mission and that he will leave the world and return to the Father when his work is done. How long am I to bear with you? I've come down here. I've come beside you. How long have I got to put up with this before I can go back to the Father? In the days of his earthly life, he learned firsthand about the vagaries of human allegiances. How long will he have to live with and put up with human unbelief, even the unbelief in his church? Now, don't mistake this for frustration. This is not Jesus being frustrated here. This kind of language is often used in the Old Testament and is described as prophetic exaggeration. It's really a reprimand. He's giving them a reprimand, telling them off. And it's the prelude to the fourth point, which is the display of Jesus' authority. Bring him to me, Jesus said. 
That is, bring the boy to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the demon saw him, immediately convulsed the boy. He fell to the ground, rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been going on? The father says, from childhood. It's often cast him into the fire and to water and to destroy him. But, the father says, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. You notice the father's complete identification with his son. Have compassion on us, my boy and me, the family. Have compassion on us and help us. Matthew and Luke shorten this response. Mark gives the whole narrative, and it's very helpful in filling in the color. Well, Jesus' response is to pick up the Father's words. Jesus said to him, if you can, did you say to me, if you can, do you know who you're talking to when you ask the question, if you can? That's how Jesus is speaking to the man. He's exposing the man's unbelief. He's raising the question about the man's understanding. You can't talk about possibilities when it comes to God. Jesus makes that clear. All things are possible for the one who believes. A person who has faith, who believes, will not set limits to what God in Christ can do. They will believe that God is God. And if anyone knows anything about Jesus, they will know that He is God and that nothing is impossible with God. You will never say to Jesus, if you can. The disciples had shown that lack of faith hinders the work of God. Not that it hinders God, but it hinders our part in the miracle, in the work of God. And so the Father says, I believe. Help my unbelief. John Calvin, who's not known for his touchy-feeliness, writes a great paragraph on this verse. Here's what he says. Jesus declares or the man declares, rather, that he believes and yet acknowledges himself to have unbelief. These two statements appear to contradict each other. But there is none of us, none of us in this room, that does not experience both of them in themselves. As our faith is never perfect, it follows that we are partly unbelievers, but God forgives us, And exercises such forbearance towards us as to reckon us as believers on account of even the smallest portion of faith. Faith like a grain of mustard. Isn't that wonderful? If we could could actually analyze faith in our lives, we'd find that, that actually our faith is quite small. The rest that we think is faith is really unbelief. But God graciously credits us for the little bit of faith that we have. 
And Jesus accepts this man's faith as real faith. And at this point, the crowds are coming back. The crowds are bearing down on them. And Jesus hurries to carry out the exorcism at once to avoid the publicity. He says to the demon, I command you. And it heightens the personal authority of Jesus over the demons. Well, the paragraph ends with the lesson. Fifthly, the lesson to Jesus' disciples. It's captured in the very last verse. This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And by prayer here, he's not referring to prayer as a religious exercise. That's commanded, by the way, in the Bible. It's commanded and commended our religious exercises of prayer. But here, no, here the reference is to prayer in the sense of a complete dependence upon God. In other words, prayer is not a bargaining chip to get God's attention. I'm praying to you. You want to listen up. Rather, God's gifts and His provisions need to be asked for. See, the disciples had gone on a mission trip before, and they'd exercised demons right, left, and center. They thought the kingdom of God had already arrived. They came back to Jesus absolutely full of excitement and enthusiasm. Even the demons respond to our preaching and are cast out. They were so excited. So how come they can't do it now? Because they assumed they could just carry on and do it now. And some of us in our Christian life assume that because we were able to overcome temptation back there where there was a very big temptation and we prayed about it and God gave us the grace and we were able to overcome it, how come I'm not able to do it now in this place? Or back there when, when, when I was struggling financially perhaps and maybe I had health issues and I was struggling and God gave me the grace to endure it. Here I am now in this situation, and I'm not doing it. Well, I'm asking you the question. In the situation where you're struggling, are you praying? Because God doesn't give it all, once and for all. He gives you grace by the day. His mercies are new every morning. You need to ask Him. That's what Jesus is saying. You need to ask Him, and He'll give you. He wants you to ask Him for it. He wants you to behave like a child to your father and ask Him. And He's promised if you, if you ask, I'll give it to you. I'll give you the blessing. To think we have God's power and His blessings as a right or as something that's just at our disposal whenever we want it is tantamount to unbelief. You have not, because you ask not. And so if you come to church and the sermon bores you to tears, maybe it was because you didn't ask the Holy Spirit to make the sermon come alive. If you come to church and you get nothing out of it, maybe it's because you didn't come to church and ask God to make something of it. That's the lesson that Jesus leaves with us tonight. Let's pray. (coughs) (coughs) Father, we pray that by the Holy Spirit you would write your word in our hearts. 
for Jesus' sake. Amen.